Hysteria is brought to you by Books. This Mother's Day, give mom her flowers. She deserves the best. That's why you should send her farm fresh flowers from Books. That's short for bouquets. And right now, you can get 25% off your entire Books purchase. Here's why everyone likes the Books company. Books is different. Their flowers are cut fresh and sourced directly from the best flower farms, so they last way longer. They even have flowers grown on the side of a volcano, which I love. Books has modern designs and unique flowers you can't find anywhere else. Books is simple. Go online, pick the delivery date, and you are done. Mother's Day is May 12th. Don't miss the chance to thank your mom. Order your books now. And with 20% off, you can send some to mom, wife, aunt, and even grandma. Erin, I love my books. I love a flower that lasts forever, and my books arrangements really do last a full solid week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have uh, I have some sitting on my kitchen table right now, mm-hmm. and they've been there for several days. And usually when I buy them at, like, the grocery store, they're sort of, like, starting to crap Fade. out pretty quickly. Yep. Not with books. They stick around. They look beautiful. I like how they kind of slowly open up and become even more beautiful as they sit on your, you know, wherever Absolutely, you Absolutely, because they're that fresh. So go to books.com and use promo code hysteria for 25% off. That's B-O-U-Q-S.com, promo code hysteria. Books, promo code hysteria. Hello and welcome to Hysteria. I'm Erin Ryan. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco. Alyssa, Ted Cruz was in the news over the past week for being an idiot, uh, trying to go on a vacation to Cancun as people in his uh, state, uh, people who elected him, people who were ostensibly paying his salary, freezed and had to boil their water in order to be able to drink it. So my question for you this week is, what vacation destination would you risk it all for? Well, I would risk it, I think, for, I think I would want to go to Kawari Cliffs, New Zealand, which was where we were supposed to go on our honeymoon, but my cat Shrummy got sick, and when you marry the best person ever, they say, we can't leave the sick cat, we have to stay behind. And also now, Jacinda Ardern, who wouldn't want to go to New Zealand? I know, I just want to be close to her. I just want to be close to Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. You even kind of look like her. Oh, that's so nice. You're so lucky. Um, so my my place that I would get caught going to while my state suffered, I would be like, okay, you know what? My career, my reputation, almost worth it. Um, there is a preserve uh, in Rwanda for the lowland gorillas that Diane Fossey um, used to work out of. And it's currently uh, got, you know, all these lowland gorillas that live there and they only allow a limited number of people to visit every year. And it has been the place that's been, like, I'll never be able to afford to go there. But if I could, I would risk a lot of people getting mad at me in order to go and see the lowland gorillas in an environmentally responsible way. (laughs) So wait, what you're you're saying is you wouldn't take coach to Cancun to risk your career. No! Coach to Cancun, like, come on. That is not only, that's that's not only an asshole thing, it's a tacky asshole thing. Do you think he was going to go to Senior Frogs, though? He was going to drink an entire glass boot of something. (laughs) Nobody who's that shitty at their job deserves to take a vacation. Agree. 
On this week's episode, Dr. Heather Irabunda, Riri Cheney, and Julissa Arce join us to tackle the following questions. Who deserves to be toasted and roasted in the news this week? Then we have our most meta episode ever for a podcast called Hysteria and talk about our bodies and healthcare. How is TikTok helping demystify going to the gynecologist? How many people have been told that their pain is all in their head? And why does it sometimes feel like we each need a full-time assistant to help us advocate for ourselves? All this and more right now. Okay, so we have a ton of show to get to today. This is the show where we're talking about like medical stories and and all that stuff. Um, So I think we're going to do a quick version of news so we can get right to the the meat of the show, if you will. Um, Let's just do a couple toasts and roasts. Yeah. Okay. So um, speaking of Texas, I think we have a toast to offer in, in addition to the roast of Ted Cruz. And that is to AOC and Beto O'Rourke and others who have contributed to raising millions. I think it was $5 million. $5 million. They made 784,000 or 784,000 calls to seniors to check in on them. Yeah, they're actually doing work that uh, Ted Cruz did not do. Um, They've, but the, you know, Texas had a historically large and, uh, a historically large power outage that anybody who had anything to do with the grid could have seen coming. And now uh, the people who are um, supposed to just live in Texas and not have to worry about their power have to worry about all these things. Uh, It was a real fuck up of unfettered capitalism. And uh, it's really good to see people like O'Rourke and AOC coming in there to help try to bridge the gap between what the government was supposed to do and what the government actually did. So that's a good toast. Um, Alyssa, do you want to toast our favorite Biden nominee? Deb Holland. Deb Soon Holland. to be Secretary of the Interior, Knockwood, barring anything crazy. I mean, Erin, she came out for her confirmation hearing just fucking like ready to go. She was calm. She was smooth. Every time the Republicans tried to fuck with her, she was just like unflappable. She spoke in a voice that uh, one of my friends and I called Zanny voice. It's like as if you've taken a Xanax because nothing is going to get your blood pressure up. (laughs) And she just knew every, she just, she was so, uh, she was so impressive and great. And we are so excited for her. Mm -hmm. And it's super exciting also for um, members of the indigenous community because she will become the first Native American Interior Secretary. Uh, The Department of the Interior also contains the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And it is absurd that they never once had a Native American in charge of the Bureau of Indian Affairs in the history of the U.S. So Deb Holland, uh, one of New Mexico's finest. We love New Mexico here. Because it's one of the finest states. One of America's best states. And uh, she's she's going to do such great, she's going to be such a great head of that department. And, you know, both symbolically and just as an individual who just knows her shit. So I'm so excited. I have a, I have a sweatshirt with Deb Holland's face on the front of it. What? Yeah. I'll show it to you. I'll, I'll send you a picture after we are done Okay. Recording. That's very good. It's when I wear it around my neighborhood, which is, I got to say, it, it's a blue neighborhood within a blue city. <laughs> um, I get some thumbs ups for my Deb Holland sweatshirt. That's it's, amazing. Yeah. Love Deb Holland around here. Um, let's do a quick roast. Uh, you know, sometimes when we roast people, we roast people that were at one point the subjects of toasts because it's very important to have an adult relationship with 
the government that you have hired to Correct. govern you, which means that sometimes they're going to do things that make you happy, and sometimes they're going to do things that make you mad. Um, Alyssa, you're closer to this one than I am, so why don't I'll, I'll let you take the take the reins. Governor Andrew Cuomo, we must roast you. Anyone who's sort of seen bits and pieces of this in the news, he has a, he and his administration have had an issue with the reporting of deaths of people who were in nursing homes and were not counting people who left nursing homes to be hospitalized and then passed in a hospital. Now, there's a lot going back and forth. And look, he said, and his staff says that the reason they, they underreported that number back in August or September was because the Trump administration was trying to be punitive. They wanted to investigate them. They wanted to take resources away from New York State. Here's the thing. I get all that. But then he threatened, bullied, um, like verbally attacked members of the New York Assembly and told them to like get out and put positive statements. And if they didn't, he was going to destroy them. And here's what we've learned, Aaron. I just think as a rule, don't say things like I will destroy you to people. It never ends well. People don't abide or appreciate that sort of philosophy. So just like, look, people have always thought of, of Cuomo as a bully his handling of of, of God, his handling of the covid crisis sort of redeemed him in certain ways in people's eyes and then just to hear this you're like nope he was always the same mm -hmm. yeah i will destroy you is a bad thing to say if you're a public facing person here just you. don't i believe that i will destroy you has just often ends up destroying you mm, the one yeah. who said it if everybody anybody ever finds out about it i want to add i want to you know the the nursing home statistical, like like cloak and daggering that Cuomo did is is pretty gross. Right. Um, I also want to add that like he really has done basically jack shit to uh, help the restaurant and the food service industry in yes. New York. Um, my friend Haley, uh, my best friend who I grew up with from when we were kids, uh, works in food service in New York, and she's been trying to. You know, they've been trying, like people who work in the industry have been trying to raise their plight to his attention and he just seems like extremely indifferent to it. Um, and I just think, you know, I hope that he has some sort of political accountability for this because some of the stuff he did made him look like he was doing good shit. And right. ultimately it was, it seems like a lot of it was window dressing and that is not what people need. People need actual governance instead of just a guy who gets on TV and plays a governor every day. And also everybody knows that when you are facing a crisis, get out in front of it. If you're threatening people, guess what? It's coming out. And so instead, imagine if they had said shortly after election day, this is what we did. Here's why we did it. You don't agree with us. We understand. We had to make a judgment call. Here are the real numbers. And you know, get on with it. Mm -hmm. Trying to bury it never works and actually makes you seem like you didn't just hide it because of Trump. It makes it look like you're just trucking, fucking trying to hide it. Mm -hmm. And so do better. Yeah, do better and spend less energy if you're the governor of New York having a cat fight with the mayor of New York City. I'm so fucking over. I don't even live there anymore. And I am so over the de Blasio Cuomo slap fight. Boys, grow the fuck up.
No one's going to be president. Stop dreaming that big dream. <laughs> neither of you are going to be president. No. I will, I will work to make sure neither of you become president. And I'm in your party. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking govern. Gosh. Okay. Um, I'm sure we'll be talking more about all of the people that we toasted and roasted this week. But for now, let's transition to uh, the medical part of the show. We're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we are going to talk to Dr. Heather Irabunda, who is uh, an amazing OBGYN and advocate based out of New York City, who can answer some of our questions about healthcare. And welcome back. Today, we are so excited to welcome Dr. Heather Irabunda. She's a board-certified OBGYN based out of New York City and a woman's health advocate. If you're not already following her on Instagram and TikTok, run, don't walk to that follow button. She is leading the charge in making women's health accessible, relatable, and dare I say, fun. Welcome, Dr. Heather Irabunda. Hi, ladies. How are you? Hello. Hello. We're doing good. Good. We're really excited to talk to you today. Um, so one thing that you've brought a lot of attention to is the Black maternal health crisis in the U.S. Black moms in the U.S. are three to four times more likely to die from pregnancy-related deaths than white moms, and Black moms in New York City are eight to 12 more times more likely. Those are horrible statistics. So, doctor, what's going on, and why isn't this very alarming stat front-page news? Well, this stat actually has been steadily getting worse over the last almost 30 years. So since 1990, the overall mortality rate for pregnant women of all races has gone up in America. But most notably, um, the disparity between that mortality rate, the mortality rate of white women versus Black women has distance itself remarkably. So as you mentioned, three to four times, um, Black women are three to four times more likely to die from a pregnancy-related death than white women. And here where I am in New York City, it's eight to 12 times more likely, which is crazy. And so there's a lot of different things that are being thought of as to why this is happening. One of the biggest things we think is causing this is systemic issues, like so systemic racism and implicit bias in medicine. Because really what's interesting is that the marker for Black maternal mortality or maternal mortality in general really tells you about a larger issue with health access for all individuals, no matter the gender, the race, and all of that. So that's why it's actually really more, like very alarming because it tells you the status of everyone's health in a community. Mm-hmm. So doctor, all these issues are perpetuated by a system of oppression and a healthcare system that was not created to help everyone. Right. How has your experience with racism in the medical field influenced your journey as a doctor and your philosophy on care? What sort of prejudices within the medical field are you noticing as the most prevalent? Well, for me, I grew up in the Bronx. I grew up in New York City. So I work in the Bronx. I live, I've live. i lived in the Bronx. I now live in Queens, which I'm kind of cheating on the Bronx for. <laughs> but um, neither here nor there. But the thing for me is like growing up, right? So my parents, like my mom was in school. My dad didn't have like a high paying job when I was really young. And so... I went to free clinics to get my immunizations and to get all that stuff. And what I remember the most is that we used to go to different clinics all the time, right? So I I didn't have a consistent pediatrician, um, which... 
some of my colleagues when I went to other schools, like when I went to high school, when I went to college, they were like, oh yeah, I've known my pediatrician since I was a baby. And that wasn't the same for me. And a lot of my patients experience the same things. In addition to that, there's like access to care. So if you're um, low income, underinsured, you don't have a job that has either good insurance or you don't have insurance, then it's harder for you to get into the doctor for preventative care. And so what happens is that when you go into pregnancy as a pregnant mom, um, you're in like a worse state of health than if you were someone who was consistently going to the doctor, getting annual physicals, and not just going when things are in extremis. So I see kind of the structural issues with that. And it, and, and it does affect communities of color more because of redlining, like so housing. I know a lot of people are talking about housing discrimination and housing differences. That actually um, affects your health care because it affects the amount of funding your local hospital gets, your local clinics get. So all of that is wrapped up into into all of it. So that's a big thing that I've seen. And then in terms of implicit bias, I mean, unfortunately, in my training and even as someone who's now, you know, a full-fledged doc, I've seen and I've heard my colleagues talk about patients in some disparaging ways, like, oh, they don't know what's good for them. We know what's good for them. Oh, she's complaining of pain. I don't think she's in as much pain. So those are the things that you hear, and that's what's the most concerning because you're not sure if they're taking, if my colleagues are taking these patients' um, complaints or issues with as much vigor as they should be as as they're not paying as much attention to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and kind of piggybacking on that, um, the way that the system sort of like infantilizes and disempowers patients in some cases, I think contributes to a distrust. But then there's also bigger issues, obviously, that contribute uh, in some communities to a general distrust of the medical uh, field. Yes. So how do you rebuild that distrust uh, for black and brown people who maybe are less inclined to even try to go to the doctor because of the way they were treated? And you are so right when you say that because the infantilization, the um, the distrust, it's so deep in our communities. And so one big thing is making sure that the community, the healthcare community reflects the people that they work for. So increasing the number of Black nurses, Black doctors, Black, um, you know, people who just work in the medical care facilities, and, and even more importantly, people from the community trying to find that. And I know it's hard because as we all, as a lot of us know, only 2% of um, doctors in the United States are Black women. So there are not many of us out there. So it's hard, but we need to look towards the next generation and start increasing the numbers of people who go into these fields. In addition, looking at culturally competent care. So requiring that people who work in medicine really get an understanding of the communities that they're working in. And it's hard, people are burnt out, we have to learn a lot, we have to know a lot to do our jobs. But what's really important is that if you look at these outcomes and see that we're having such you know, such poor outcomes compared to other industrialized nations, we need to do something different and we need to do it now. So I do think that, you know, making sure that we are instituting initiatives to talk about culturally competent care, actually having a lot of these discussions happen with people of color, because a lot of times the implicit bias training, 
culturally competent care doesn't come from someone of color. So then you're like, well, is it really working? Is it really like, are we really getting anywhere with this? Mm -hmm. Let's pivot a little bit to social media because you've brought so much (laughs) attention to women's health in a very tangible way via Instagram and your TikTok. Usually women's health is such a taboo topic. You see a tampon commercial or a birth control commercial advertising their products, but you never really hear what they're supposed to do, what they're supposed to be for. Right. So you're doing Yotman's work to demystify these questions and issues. What is the most common question you get from women when it comes to their reproductive health? Well, um, a big question that I get is how is it supposed to smell? Like, I'm not sure if what I'm smelling is what's supposed to, is how things supposed to smell. And so that's actually, yeah, that's probably one of the number one questions. And usually the first thing I ask people is like, does it smell bad or does it smell different? Because those are two different, those are two different things because there's like a very big difference between bad and different. And that's why some people get overtreated for different um, issues like vaginitis, which is like inflammation of the vagina, which could be due to not just infectious things, but just like You may have used a soap that wasn't too good and your body didn't like it. Or you had a partner who used a soap that wasn't too good and (laughs) your body didn't like it. So, um, you know, it's just it's really getting into the weeds and figuring out what exactly, um, you know, what's going on and having those conversations. And I think that with my social media, I'm really trying to make it easy for people to be like, hey, your doctor either has experienced it or seen it a million times. This is what we listen to. This is what we're trained to do. And like, we're also normal people. So you can talk to us like normal people and we're not going to judge you or freak out. (laughs) (laughs) That is really nice to hear from an OBGYN. Um, What is your favorite part of being an OBGYN? I think for me, it's empowering vagina owners because (laughs) growing up, I... I grew up in like a pretty conservative household. I'm first generation. So my dad's African and my mom's from Jamaica and she's like super old school. And so, I mean, literally I was taught nothing about this. I went to Catholic all girls high school also, which didn't, which like compounded on the issue. So I felt like I didn't know anything. And like all of the information I was getting was either from like Seventeen magazine or some some comparable magazine or like the other girls in Catholic school, which <laughs> let me tell you, did not know that much. And so, <laughs> and so I like that I'm able to see people and be like, okay, sit down, let me tell you about what's going on, and be like, I totally didn't know this either. Like. Fun fact, I didn't know how to track my period until medical school. I'm not even kidding. What? Maybe I was a little behind in the but I did not know. I was like, first day, last day, I don't know. It comes every month, and if it doesn't come, I freak out because maybe I'm pregnant. <laughs> like, I know <laughs> nothing else. So I'm glad that I'm able to share what I've learned to other people about how those parts work and what's going on. And I'm like, isn't it really cool? Because I think it is. Mm -hmm. I bet that experience has made you feel like your experience of growing up not knowing stuff is actually kind of normal. (laughs) And like a lot of people (laughs) are just learning about themselves as they they get older. And it's it's good to have people like you who can help shepherd them along the path. Um, 
Do you think it's moving in a in a positive direction? Do, are you seeing more people of color and more people of culturally diverse backgrounds engaging in the field of OBGYN? I actually do. I do think it's moving way more forward because it used to actually be a male-dominated field. Like, OBGYNs used to be guys, like all men. And then it's moved into that direction. And now we're more of a female-driven field, which you would expect so because most people who are female have vaginas, right? (laughs) So that's why it's super exciting that we're moving in that direction. And And it's one of the most diverse Mm-hmm. Um, subspecialties in medicine. So it's super exciting. I'm super happy that it's moving in this direction because we need it mm-hmm. so badly. Definitely. Um, and then also to just put a button on this conversation, there's a bill in Congress right now called the Black Maternal Health Momnibus that addresses the crisis in Black maternal health um, and directs the Department of Health and Human Services and other agencies to address maternal health outcomes among minority populations. And we need it to pass. We do. We do. So if you're listening, call your congressperson. Let them know you want them to support the bill. That number is 202-224-3121. And you can tell them Dr. Heather Irabunda sent you. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah, totally. I'll take the hint for that one. (laughs) Heather, are you taking new patients? I am taking new patients. Oh, I'm coming to see you. No question. I just talked for 45 minutes about my trauma with my recent gyno. And so I am coming to see you. I feel like so many people, I'm like, I love being like the person who, I'm like, let me hear the traumas. Cause like, I feel like I hear so much. That's the reason why I feel so passionate. That's why I started my social media because everybody has a story. I have a really terrible story. I was in the military and my first pap in the military, they basically like lined us up And um, I was on my period. I was like, can I even do this now? I was, you know, like 23 or something like that. And they were like, yeah, no problem. And they were like, everybody go in the room, pants off, whatever, sit on the bed. And I'm like, I'm literally bleeding on myself. They were like, you have to take everything off. And I like bled all over the place. And the guy was like, I'm sure it's not that bad. It was that bad. And then he was like, oh, it was that bad. Ah. And I just sat in a pool of my own period blood for like an hour and a half. Oh, that's, yeah, it's about right. Oh my gosh. That's why I went into OBGYN <laughs> because after that experience, it was like, no one should ever have to experience this. Yeah. No, I feel like a new person now that I'm going to come see you. Totally. Come, come to the BX. That's where I am. Oh, no problem. I'll be there. <laughs> Alyssa's taking awesome. notes. She's, awesome. she's going. To no, go. you can tell the whole time I've been taking notes. I was like, okay, I have solved my problem. <laughs> There you go. Thank you so much, Dr. Heather Irabunda. Um, Thank you for all the work you do. And uh, we have to take a quick break. Thank you, guys. This episode is brought to you by IQ Bar. Power up your life with superior brain and body nutrition products from IQ Bar. Their plant protein bars are the perfect low-carb breakfast. Their IQ Mix Zero Sugar Hydration Drinks replenish electrolytes. And their IQ Joe Mushroom Coffees will keep you focused all day long. Start each day right with IQ Bar's brain and body boosting bars, hydration mixes, and mushroom coffees. Their ultimate sampler pack includes all three. IQ Bar empowers doers with superior brain and body nutrition. All their products are entirely free from gluten, dairy, soy, GMOs, and artificial sweeteners. And today, Hysteria listeners get an exclusive offer of 20% off plus free shipping. Just text HYSTERIA to 64000. 
One thing I love about IQ Bar is, first of all, right now it's really dry where I am. Oh, okay. It is hard for me to stay hydrated. I just like I, I'll just be going through my day and I'll be like, why am I so like parched? I'm parched. I'm in a bad mood. I feel like I'm gonna pass out. And it's ah, you gotta drink some water. You gotta stay hydrated. I really like their IQ Mix Zero Sugar Hydration Drinks because it allows me to rehydrate myself at a time yeah. when I feel like the atmosphere is trying to take all my moisture away. Well, and sometimes you need more than just water. Sometimes you need more more than just water. I also love IQ bars because I love a portable breakfast. I love a grab-and-go breakfast. No dishes. Love something I can walk around holding and eating. I like something I can eat in my car without endangering the lives of me and every other motorist on the road. A breakfast burrito. <laughs> not, not the safest thing to eat behind the wheel. IQ bar, go ahead and do it. Good for you. Great ingredients. Helps you... Stay focused and alert throughout the day, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, and you don't have to dirty any dishes. Refuel smarter with IQ Bar's Ultimate Sampler Pack. That's seven IQ Bars, four IQ Mix sticks, and four IQ Joe sticks. And now our special podcast listeners get 20% off all IQ Bar products, plus get free shipping. To get your 20% off, just text Hysteria to 64000. Get your discount. Text Hysteria to 64000. That's H-Y-S-T-E-R-I-A to 64000. Message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. Welcome back. Uh, This is the part of the show where Alyssa and I are joined by other people who make us feel slightly less lonely. Not that we're lonely together. It's just, you know, the more the merrier in in hysteria land. Um, I don't want to spend too much time going back and forth about small talk and stuff because I kid you not, I have like 20 pages of notes for this show. So without further ado, I'm going to bring in the other two panelists today. First off, she is a writer of things that you will, quote, know about in four years, Mm. (laughs) and a general gal about town. Please welcome Riri Cheney. Hi, guys. Nice to, you know, New Year's. Is this my first time this year? I don't know. I I don't know what time is. I think before, but it was a sad one. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Never mind. Happy Black History Month, everyone. We're doing it. (laughs) (laughs) You were like, you you came on a sad one and you were like, it's not going to be sad the next time. Yeah, that's true. I really was like, we're going to be, yeah, and of course what we're about to talk about, light as shit, but we're really really trying. But it's not about the news, really. It's about a kind of omnipresent pall over the lives of many people. Oh, oh, I love a Paul. (laughs) Um, And second up, uh, welcoming her as an official part of the Hysteria Mm. team for the first time. You've heard her a bunch, though, so you you guys know and love her already. She is an author of two books plus a new book that will also have a title, according (laughs) to her. Please welcome Julissa Arce. Thank you. I'm so excited. I feel like you guys have made an honest woman out of me. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> yeah, we can we can go out in public now and we don't have to worry about running into somebody. Yeah, we can like, like hold hands in public. Well, you know, after COVID. <laughs> That's true. From now, we can just like socially distant. I wonder if socially distant hanging like elicits the same scandalous response among people that seeing people holding hands would have before COVID. Like before COVID, you see two people like holding hands or smooching and you're like... 
ooh, mm-hmm. what's going on there? I didn't know about this coupling. But now you see them in a socially distant hang. It's like, ooh, a dog walk. What are they up to? Also, especially out here, because like so many people's hangs involve like ventures into nature. Aaron's culture, not mine. And so to <laughs> the idea that someone like drove there, like mm-hmm. went to a location is like, Oh, y'all smashing? That's fun. Like, okay. <laughs> it's like the only thing that's acceptable in public are these like Victorian style dates. Walkabouts. Like <laughs> Six yeah. foot yeah. chaperone. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So uh, this week's topic, we um, asked you all, our listeners, to submit stories that fit in with what we were about to talk about. And I don't know. Alyssa knows how many emails we got about this. How many would you estimate we got? I mean, like a lot, like more than a screen full. <laughs> like hundreds. I think we got like two like hundreds. or three screens full of emails from listeners. And they were all about, they were all like multi-paragraph stories mm. that pertain to this topic. So yeah, we have a lot to talk about. Um, so first, I want to kind of preface this conversation about um, the medical field and our interactions with the American healthcare system as patients, I want to preface it by saying um, my big takeaway from reading every single one of the emails, I literally read everyone. I think that the big takeaway just to start is that I don't think that we individually think that doctors are bad people. Um, And I also don't think that Um, hearing that people had a bad time at the doctor should discourage anybody for seeking help from a medical condition. That's the opposite of what should happen. I think the biggest takeaway is that big picture, the fact that so many women have a medical horror story indicates how urgently the system needs to change. It feels like the system is the villain here, not individual doctors and nurses that are working their asses off that have nothing to do with cases that people have told us about. So I'm hoping that this conversation normalizes how important it is for us to advocate for ourselves within this really fucked up system. And I hope it normalizes going up the chain for answers. And I hope it normalizes uh, demanding systemic change so that, you know, everybody can be better off, healthcare professionals, patients, everybody. And uh, I hope at the very least this feels cathartic. So with that being said, let's get started. Um, Julissa, I want to start with you since it's your first official show as an official member of the official squad. I love that. How old were you when you realized that doctors aren't infallible and that there are good and bad doctors and what happened? Hmm. So I, um, I think I knew this when I was a child, like going to the doctor in Mexico. And because I had the back of an earring get stuck in my ear, like inside my ear. And so I had to have surgery to have it removed. And the doctor was intoxicated. And um, so then my, my mom obviously didn't let them like operate on me. Right. But but I rem- I mean, I was little, but I distinctly remember like my mom being frantic about not, you know, like running in there being like, don't, don't you dare like touch her um, because the doctor wasn't okay. So I was very little when I realized that there are people who like make mistakes and have lives. And, but that was a pretty traumatic experience uh, just being like, you know, already in the like little table. It wasn't like a huge 
like operation, right? Because all they had to do was like slip my little ear open and like get the little thing out. Which, by the mm. way, I, I don't think they ever did take out. It's like there. Like I can feel it in my ear. So, oh my gosh. <laughs> so it's there. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. Uh, but, but I was pretty young when I realized it. Mm-hmm. Your point about them being people is really important because like any profession that, that's that geographically spread out and that ha- involves that many human beings is like, yeah, human beings are human beings. You know, there are good ones and bad ones. But I think, you know, the medical field is one of those things that you trust them so entirely. And a lot of times you go there in a place of fear. And so all it takes is one bad experience or one experience where you feel like you weren't treated well to really leave a lasting impression. Um, Riri, how old were you when you realized that doctors weren't infallible? Um, I I think I must have been a little older. I was really lucky in that. One, I, I grew up knowing a lot of uh, doctors that look like me. So that kind of engendered amount of trust, like that's Ella's dad. That's, you know, my, my sister's mother is a doctor. So I was like, yeah, they, they, they stupid at holiday parties, but mostly like they're just normal suburban outside of Baltimore humans. It wasn't until my mother, um, I'm lucky I have a real Shirley MacLaine in terms of endearment mother, you know, like a real, uh, my child's ankle is sprained. I will get attention immediately type of vibe. So I was always taken care of. So I didn't really notice it until I had to watch her advocate for other older members of our family. Mm-hmm. And um, my my great grandmother, who my, raised my mom, she my mom was always about like how do we get make sure she has the best best healthcare? How do we do this? And I just didn't understand why how, my mom always went into it so with such suspicion until my great uncle his aorta burst one day, and we had to take him. We took him to the hospital, and it was and it was scary because I we literally just he didn't know what was going on, so we picked him up and took him. But my mom freaking out, calling everyone. I'm with my aunt. She's calling other people because they wouldn't believe how serious it was for him. Mm-hmm. That this isn't, you know, this isn't a man. It's a generation of men who do not like going to the hospital, do not like, you know, dealing with medicine because of what they know that have happened to the people ahead of them. And she is fighting, fighting, fighting for them to to treat this man's pain with the severity that ultimately, if it had been 20 minutes later, he wouldn't he wouldn't have lived the silly last years of his life that he got to live. So it it wasn't, and there are later things, of course, that like came around where I was just like, oh, cool, I don't, I'm not going to get listened to at the rate of my friends. But I was I was introduced to the advocacy for those who need it first rather than advocating for myself, which I think to this day is still a problem where I will like mm-hmm. fight to make sure y'all get what you need to need. And like, I will have to go pull some Shirley MacLaine in a, in an urgent care <laughs> on a college campus, which I definitely did in 2009, 2010, but have a harder time doing it for myself. Mm-hmm. Alyssa, you know, you and I have talked about this over text and just in the last, over the <laughs> course of the last three years, but um, do you ever feel like the system is sort of designed? Because it's ridiculous that to go to the doctor, you almost have to have an assistant to be like, hmm. no, it's real. Um, do you ever feel like the system is designed to just exhaust you and make you discouraged and then just give up? Uh, definitely. You know, first of all, just finding a doctor who will accept you and whatever insurance you have is a full-time job. I routinely am on the phone with my insurance and I... I start every conversation with, 
I need to warn you, I'm frustrated, but I'm also aware this is not your fault. I mean, like that's literally, they must have a picture of me up at the Blue Cross uh, headquarters somewhere. But not only that, I had a really terrible experience with a gynecologist when I was pretty young. I was like 22 and she was so mean, like the meanest person I have ever encountered. But the worst was she told me I needed an antibiotic. I was on birth control. Guess what, guys? A lot of antibiotics negate the birth control. And so she didn't tell me. The pharmacist didn't tell me. (laughs) So then all of a sudden, one of my girlfriends is like, wait a minute. Like, you know, your birth control is probably not working. I call the doctor to see if I now need gasp the morning after pill just be to be safe. And she gave me like a five minute shout down about why I was so irresponsible. Now, Alyssa at age 45 now knows I could have really raised hell, but mostly I was so ashamed because she made me feel ashamed. I didn't go to a gyno for six years after that. Wow. One, the, the she pronoun of that is always pretty spectacular, but it is like for someone whose focus is women's health. I think it's also part of women are always afraid that like we're going to get in trouble more. So like going on the defensive when it's like, but your yeah. job is my body. Like, like you understand that I'm just here because no one told me this. And I'm also, I'm trying to be responsible for where I am in my life, but you're, you, because you fucked up, you're going to freak. Okay. Party. Like, yes, <laughs> I will never understand that. And like, I don't work in a, such a high stakes industry mm-hmm. and like that needs to be a test. What, how responsible are you for your actions? Mm-hmm. I don't know. To the point though, too, it's like, I was lucky that to to Aaron, your question about having an assistant, like I had like three, four roommates at the time. And when I went home, I was crying and I was so upset and they were like, fuck that shit. And everybody, we just sat in a circle and we're like, okay, like, what do we have to do? And it's like, you really do need someone to like game plan it out with sometimes like, okay, I'm going, what do I need to ask? I haven't been feeling good, but how do I explain my not feeling good so that they don't like brush my symptoms off? Mm -hmm. Like going to the doctor and it's like going to the gyno, especially and being like, I'm so tired around my period. No, 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 no. You need like a very illustrative, graphic, vivid scenario to explain so that they focus and don't just try to be like, take Advil. Mm-hmm. I swear. Well, it's like our bodies communicate in pain, but then we have to communicate that in words to someone who doesn't necessarily understand, yeah. right? Somebody who doesn't necessarily empathize extremely with our pain. Um, and it just feels like a real roadblock. Uh, Julie, so you looked like you wanted to say something. Well, I was just going to say that um, I guess one one like lucky thing about uh, being Mexican, well, there are many lucky things, but one lucky thing about in particular talking about the healthcare system is that I feel like I've had to advocate for myself since I was a little girl because my parents never wanted to take me to the doctor. So like my first advocacy was just to get my parents to realize that, no, this was not something that we could cure with Vaporu or, you know, not something that like the curandera could uh, could give me some like herbal tea and like go away or like the person who like... Um, I forget what they're called, but basically they're like a they're like a chiropractor that didn't go to school, right? Like they're they just like uh, squeeze you and like rub you, and then like you're all good to go most of the time. But at, but there were several times definitely where I was just like so so sick, and I kept telling my mom like I'm sick, mom, I really am sick. But like they never wanted to take me to the doctor, and so I think that because of that, 
I've never had a problem showing up to a doctor's office and being like, I don't feel well. And the little pill that you want to give me, like, that's not going to do it. I've, I've had, you know, I've, I've had this before. They prescribed me that it didn't work. Uh, so I think I've learned to, from very, from being very young to not, to not just trust what the doctor says, because I know my body best and I know what I'm feeling. And mm -hmm. the doctor, yes, they went to school and they're trained. Uh, however, they're not in my body. And so if something doesn't feel right, I never have a problem saying this doesn't feel right. Off of like what Aaron said and Jaleesa too, of just like our bodies express something being wrong in terms of pain. And then it's, we have to translate that. But when you are like a brown black woman in this country, they don't love the way we express things that are heightened. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So even in ha even in trying to accurately describe your pain, if you do it in the way that feels natural to how fucking upset your body is, you're being dramatic and you're doing too much and you're over you're you're she might be exaggerating that might be you know drug seeking behavior or instead you try to put it in the you know customer service interview tone you can even if you're clutching a part of your of your skin and then they're like well you seem okay mm -hmm. and, and there's no way to win there yeah. And it may, which makes it more difficult for people who don't, who haven't had to advocate for themselves for as long as you have and as well as you have to like, then they get like, especially I do, I get in my brain of like, well, if I tell this man what I think of him, <laughs> will I get what I need? Right. And I know I won't. So I will sit there quietly and wait until he gives me the exact medicine I told him I already had when I got here. And then I have to get into a fight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was. Um, I, I want to cite some statistics that go that that back up 100% of what you're saying, Riri. Um, a 2014 survey found that 91% uh, felt that the healthcare system discriminates against female patients. Um, nearly half of the people who responded to the survey were at one point told that pain was all in their head. Um, it's also super common to have pelvic and menstrual pain especially if it's caused by things that are difficult to diagnose on first glance, like endometriosis or fibroids or PCOS. A lot of times those women are told that pain is in their head. Um, and black and brown women get it uh, especially intensely um, where they're not believed. They're prescribed less pain medication. Um, and uh, they're, they, they report less effective pain management than white patients. So there is like a systemic problem with, with this. And also I want to say um, the advocacy thing, just reading from all the hundreds of email submission, submissions we got, a few of them came from doctors, doctors who were like, hey, I'm a doctor. And when I go to the doctor, I have to be like, listen to me. And if it's this hard for me, then I can't imagine how hard it is for people who have a language barrier or who are um, less educated or, you know, there are so many ways that it could be harder for everybody else. I think going to the OBGYN is a particularly um, fraught experience. Um, and a lot of what I've noticed in the submissions from our listeners was that people tried to get around the uncertainty of how uncomfortable it could be by selecting a female doctor or a male doctor. And just using the anecdata that we have gathered here, it really, you cannot reliably, it seems like we had bad stories from, from both because doctors are human beings and there's no way reliably 
to get around somebody who's not going to, to do a great job. Alyssa, you and I have talked about this before. Like I only, I see a midwife here in LA who is part of a practice where there's a female doctor. Every single practitioner is a woman. And that's my comfort level. I couldn't imagine ever going to see an OBGYN that's a man, but you feel differently. I do. All of my doctors are LGBTQ men. Yes. <laughs> I love them. I love them. Shout out to Dr. Bruce Bond, who I know listens to us and Dr. Goldberg. Um, because there is something that I have found and it is, it is, I lucked out. I, I met Bruce Bond six years after my horrific experience. I gave him a chance. I traveled from New York to see him from Boston to see him. Cause he was in DC. I, like when I would move around Chicago to see him, because once I found someone I'd pay out of pocket to see him because it was such a joy. And he listened to me. Like I have all sorts of gastro issues. Everybody knows because I wrote about it in my book. And you need someone who is just not telling you to drink more fucking water. Do you how, how many times people tell me to just drink more water? And Dr. Bond, he got me through like whether to have kids, whether I could have kids. And Dr. Goldberg has, has really solved my stomach issues. But Doc Goldberg is a special case because I met him after I went to four emergency rooms four, mm -hmm. and every one of them told me it was in my head. The debilitating pain in my gut was in my head. They're like, well, you don't have the flu. I was like, I don't think I have the flu. I think it's far worse than the flu. And then I meet this man. A friend of mine was like, go see him. He listens. That was what she said. He listens. He asked me 90 questions. Wow. And when he got to the last one, he's like, okay, so do you drink? I was like, yes. He's like, does it make your stomach hurt more? I was like, no, it makes it feel better. He's like, that is impossible. And I was like, no, it's true. <laughs> and then he's like, oh, I get it. I get it. And he has managed to take care of this entire biome for years <laughs> because he listened. I was there mm -hmm. yesterday to see him. My first time I wanted to hug him. I was like, you're the one person I really want to hug right now. But he, uh, for me, it is, it is, he listened. And because my problem, my pain yeah. was actually, which most people would have totally uh, just disregarded. My pain was actually coming from severe crippling anxiety in my brain and mm. I couldn't control it. And I was really, really sick from it. And guess what? I'm not even on Wellbutrin anymore. What? Yeah, but here's the thing. Like, so what if it's in your, if in your head? Your head is a part of your body that sometimes needs to be treated. They don't want to hear that at the ER. I, yeah, I, you know what I mean? It's like they still need yeah. to, that's the root issue that needs to be addressed. Erin, baby, you know the title of your podcast, right? <laughs> it's, it, it is, but it is, it's like the idea that holding pain, holding stress, holding these things that are huge. If we've learned, one of the few things I hope we have learned this year is the strength of the mental strain on your body that it can knock you up and destroy you. But it's just, it's decided that that is a utterly flimsy excuse to be in excruciating pain. And that's so frustrating because we look at like how that affects the way you go about your life, the way it affects all different parts of your body, the way you, your reproductive system, your, the way you care for your children, which then affects their healthcare and the people, other people in your life. It's just so frustrating that we're still 
always getting back to like why mental health is minimized and why isn't it treated like the health crisis that it is. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah, I think, uh, Elisa, you said something about like he listened, your doctor listened. Mm-hmm. And it just reminded me of, um, I had, I also had a lot of stomach problems before. And Dr. Kummer in New York, um, he like literally saved me. And I had also seen like so many other doctors and he, I mean, he just really was very thorough, right? It was like colonoscopy, endoscopy, like mm-hmm. all the cospies, whatever they're called, like everything. And then finally figured out like, you know, what's, what was going on with me. Um, but I remember one particular time when I went to see him and it had been the week that one of my best friends like tragically passed away and I could not get through the appointment. Like I just started sobbing. I was like fit, like shaking. And so he asked me, you know, what's what, like, what's going on? So I told him what happened and I told him how I was feeling about it. And, you know, he was my stomach doctor and he still prescribed me a very small dose for a week of some anxiety medicine. I forget which one. Um, And because he did that, like I was actually able to go to the memorial because I really don't think that I would have made it or I would have had to been removed (laughs) from the memorial because I was just not in the, in a, in a right mental and physical state. Um, And it's because he listened, you know, he could have just like, he could have just been very nervous about a woman in his office, hysterically crying, which has happened, you know, like somebody sees you cry and they're just like, uh, I'll give you a moment and like walk out. Right. right? And he didn't do that. Like he asked questions and, and even though he wasn't, um, you know, he was my stomach doctor. He realized that there was something else going on with me that day and, and listened and took care of it. And I, uh, don't see Dr. Kummer anymore because I don't live in New York city anymore, but truly he is like, he is like, a great doctor and a great human being. Mm-hmm. I would think the relief of finding a person who can treat what seemed like an untreatable thing before is such a relief whenever you get around to it. We got so many stories from people who um, basically people had to go to five or six doctors to find out that they had endometriosis. Five or six, doc- especially chronic health conditions or something that it took them doctor after doctor. Like one, one woman wrote us and she has lupus. Her dad has lupus, but it took her like five doctors to make that connection. Oh, maybe this person also has the chronic condition that runs in her family. Um, it seems like there's a pattern among within the system, first of all, uh, where it's like, if you have a problem that a doctor can't figure out, the doctor is like, well, then you're crazy. I can't figure it out. Ergo, you're crazy. And it's like, no, you're just not the one to figure this out. Um, and that just seems to be something that, that happens a lot with, um, yeah, with, especially with like chronic conditions and and pain stuff. Um, one thing I wanted to also add is like all this doctor shopping in the U S gets expensive because you have to pay for that visit, whether or not the doctor just came into the room and, you know, blew a a party streamer and then like walked out. You have to still pay for that. Um, Do you think we should have to pay for times the doctors get it wrong? Shouldn't we get that for free? (laughs) I don't know. That'd be nice. I mean, it would be lovely. It's, it's hard because it's like, I want to respect their work. Like if, if I, if I were to believe that everyone is coming from a place of good, maybe theoretically, hypothetically, then I don't I don't think that they're trying to like fuck us. I think they're but they also have like 
how many people they're going to treat that day and what they decide their time is worth and like all of that big stuff. But it is like the access to the people that might be able to help you more being so expensive. Like I, I very freely now that, or last couple of years of living in LA when I wasn't, I was just an assistant and just like really hustling, but I had like very fancy white ladies getting me into very nice doctor's offices. And The first time I got sent to one that figured something out that really helped me that like really we really got closer to something. And I was like, this costs who? (laughs) Oh, this oh, this is this is on a plan. This will be on a plan (laughs) was so shocking because that was like to get in one trip the like the consultation, the ultrasound to get really like movement on what I needed to check out and then realize, oh, to have healthcare this good for me and where I am today is going to cost me a couple trips not to brunch. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I think one thing, you know, in addition to the cost barrier, I think sometimes um, I I don't know a single woman that doesn't have an experience like this or a single person with a uterus who doesn't have an experience like this, um, where you go to the doctor and the doctor makes wildly inappropriate assumptions about your sexuality or about your desire to have children or not have children. Um, Have you ever felt judged going to a doctor uh, about something womanly, a decision you're making or not making? Alyssa? I actually, because aforementioned Dr. Bruce Bond retired, I had to get a new gyno. And uh, (laughs) I went to her a couple months ago and... um, she was like, okay, so you're uh, 44, you're going to be 45. How many kids do you have? I don't have any kids. Oh, I was like, oh, my legs are in stirrups. You're going to owe me? Like, (laughs) it was just, it was just so much. And then you guys, like, as I have explained, I think that, I mean, you all know me. I became a stuttering fucking fool. I sit up, I'm like, well, so here's the thing. And I go through the whole story as if to justify myself when really like, just fucking give me my pap smear at this point. But then after I did all that, I was so nervous. I was so nervous. You guys, I was so nervous that I I literally tensed up such that the pap smear was excruciatingly painful. And she literally said at this point, there's no anatomical reason you should be in this much pain and told me to drink water. What? No. All of that is entirely true. And I just was like, Alyssa, I was getting dressed when it was all over. And I was like, this is an aberration. Okay. You're not going to not go to the doctor for six, four years because of this. Like you're fine. And it was, uh, it was awful. But just the fact that she was like, how many kids do you have? Oh, oh, like, should I go die now? Like, was that the, oh, you were implying, Mm -hmm. but that was, uh, that was it. And it was so, such a small room. I was, you guys, I was hot. My face was like on fire red. It was terrible. I'm getting like, Uh, I'm getting like empathetic claustrophobia. Just thinking about that. That was bad. I think I felt that a little bit of that pain. I was like, oh, I know what that feels like because I have been there. I'm like, oh, no. It's like a, it's like it's a like, tiny little yeah. wince. It's like a, guys, my cervix oh, is no. like, oh. I yelped and I go, hurry up. <laughs> no, no, thank you. Riri, bad. have you ever had like assumptions made about you in, uh, in that sort of a context? Or have you ever um, had a friend that had that happen to? 
Um, yeah, I mean, the like, I guess I'm thir- people tell me I'm 31 now. So it is, and I love, re- I love information. I love research. So I have started to every year be like, okay, so if I were to do this alone, like have kids alone because I want to have kids, like what, what's the plan there? And I, I am someone because I have changed insurance almost every year, every other year for the last couple of years have had different doctors. And so it is, I get a little of like, oh, you want to not like, not judgment, but like, oh, you, you're playing, you're thinking of doing this by yourself. It's like, yeah, like, welcome, welcome to Los Angeles in your thirties. Like, mm-hmm. baby, this is what it is. But the thing that is more has been more judgy my entire life is the fat thing. Because hmm. hmm. I've been called fat since I was 13. And it's like, nah, honey, these are titties. Welcome. But okay. it is like <laughs> like every doctor ever is like, you should really think about changing your diet and your exercise regime. And it's like, I'm I'm not I'm a bigger girl, but I'm not a big, big girl and with no shade to that. But it's like the fact that it always comes into like this is affecting your health when all of my tests are fine, my blood pressure is fine, except for like the one time I had a very tense call with my lawyer right before going into an appointment, they told me that I was told to sit down and we would take my blood pressure in 20 minutes. But other than that, I, you know, I have pretty normal stats. And for them to say, well, you should really look at like how this is affecting your health because my, they, my BMI isn't, my, isn't what they would like it to be because that's just just shittily living. You can be healthy and you can be bigger. And like, that's what's always been really frustrating because I had such shame around it. Like, like, because I have a smaller, some, most of the people in my family are on the smaller side. And so it's like, then what am I doing wrong? And how you hold that with you, even when you're older, when you have, when you have things like, I have, my my eyes are shaped funky and I have to have special contacts and like something, and my eye hurt one day. I was like, well, I did it wrong. I'm the one who fucked this up. It's like, no, you gave me the wrong lenses. But like, <laughs> there are these, that gets ingrained in you that your health is your fault, mm-hmm. which I think is so destructive because yeah, there are some things you can take control of and take the reins up. And there's certain things that sometimes you let the reins go because it's a little too rocky for you. But that's really frustrating. I think that would be like the one thing I wish that we could find a way to move through of like without using, you know, well, you know, these people, they don't like to do that. It's like the bitch, who you say is these people, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, anthropology enthusiasts. Let's go. (laughs) It's very frustrating. Riri, we got a lot of messages from people who had the same feeling of going to the doctor and feeling like dehumanized to the point that like doctors wouldn't even think to look for problems that weren't directly related to their weight. So there was a woman who wrote us who had recovered from thyroid cancer. Well, what does your thyroid do? It makes it so it's very, it it regulates your weight among other things. And Mm -hmm. so after she had thyroid cancer, it was hard for her to regulate her weight and they wouldn't even look for problems beyond the weight when she went into the doctor. And it's just like, it sounds like a huge barrier in the American healthcare system. The fact that we don't see people as human beings. Yeah. Also, it's it's that it's and it goes back to what Alyssa was saying about listening. You know, like I have I have crickety joints, crickety. Okay, like 
can't walked in a Birkenstock half up a hill, spraying my ankle was down for two weeks. Honey, this is elite cricketiness. But it's not from the fact that, you know, I'm a size 16. It's from the fact that I became this tall too quickly when I was 13, 14 years old. And if you were to listen to me when I say, yeah, my my bones grew too fast for my tendons. And so I've always been left in like a more precarious situation then we could work towards it. And like, yes, I've like tried to go to physical therapy or whatever. But back a couple of years ago when I would was really like, I'm kind of done with this being shit. They were like, well, have you thought about losing weight? It was like, you know, um, I have. I instead uh, lean into a carbonara, but that's my journey. <laughs> but mostly like, why aren't we talking about like, should I have a referral to an orthopedist? Should I be looking at the fact, like what mm. supplements do I need to be taking? What like injections of steroids should I might be taking to make my life better, not to shame me for being who I am? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Riri, true story. My mom was blown away and disturbed that I could remember the outfit I was wearing when my doctor told me when I was four years old that I should lay off the Twinkies because I wasn't eating Twinkies. I was the healthiest eater you could imagine. And she's like, Alyssa, it's impossible you remember that. I was like, I remember it like yesterday. I still recall it and it makes my face hot. I remember putting my uniform back on and not looking at my doctor while she was telling me that I was too heavy. And it sticks with you. And it just like, and it's so frustrating because it's like, I, I see so many people who are so fantastic, but they just, and they just want their healthcare providers to like provide them with healthcare. Mm-hmm. And because we hate bad people in this country and in this, on this globe, they refuse to do that. And that's just so fucked up. The thing about living, like I live in Los Angeles, the air is bad. When I go to the doctor and I'm having trouble breathing, the doctor isn't like, why don't you try not living in Los Angeles? It's like, <laughs> no, I live in Los Angeles. And so we're going to treat you where you are. I um I had a story about the the well I have two stories but one one was about the like being a woman and and like what doctors have told us right sure so I used to have really amazing healthcare and 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 I've said this I've said this on this uh on this pod before about how amazing of healthcare I had when I worked in finance and one of the benefits of that healthcare um was that they would freeze your eggs like if you wanted to it was part of the health coverage that would freeze your eggs for you and I cannot tell you how many times. I was asked, do I want to freeze my eggs? Like every visit, do you want to freeze your eggs? And I didn't want to freeze my eggs because I didn't know if I wanted to have kids. Like I, I you know, I had no idea if I wanted to have kids or not. Uh, but it was really annoying that the assumption was that because I am a woman and I don't have a partner at that time, um, that I might want to freeze my eggs. You know, mm-hmm. just make a note. She does not want to freeze her eggs. So that next time they don't ask me that question again. Because it's like, I don't know. It's a great benefit. That's a painful procedure. Like, I know women who have free- frozen their eggs. I know women who have had IVF. And that is not just a thing that you're like, okay. You don't just go to the bathroom and poop them out. Like, that's not how it works. <laughs> oh, you know? don't? Like, okay. Yeah. And then the the other thing I was going to say about the, um, the losing weight thing. I mean… I have always been like a little thicker, had a little bit more to grab onto. It's just always been my body. The best and, people do. Well, <laughs> except, you know, except that one year when I lost a ton of weight because I was heartbroken. Um, but I gained it right back. So thank you for that. Um, <laughs> but every doctor I go to, like whether it was my back doctor or like my stomach doctor, or, like every doctor, I have my whole life heard, 
you should lose 10 pounds. Like 10 pounds somehow is like the magic number. They Even decided, if I weigh 20 yeah. pounds more, you know, like I weighed 10 more pounds at the last time you told me I needed to lose 10 pounds, but you still telling me to lose 10 pounds. Like 10 pounds is like <laughs> the magic number, except nobody tells you how to do it. Nobody says, you know, and I do like diabetes runs in my family. So watching my weight is something that is important to my health, my, my specific health, right? But nobody ever says, you need to lose 10 pounds and like, here is a program for how to do it. You know, here is, here is, um, I don't know, a nutritionist you can go see. Like, mm -hmm. it's always just go lose 10 pounds. Like I could snap a finger and lose 10 pounds just by snapping my finger. Like losing weight is hard. It's really hard to lose weight and it's really hard to keep the weight off once you've lost it. It just is. And so I wish that for those of us who do actually have to watch our weight because there are illnesses that run in our families, that then there was some education on how to do it and that that education and those programs were then also covered by insurance. Mm -hmm. If I could have a great nutritionist that is part of my insurance plan, why, you know, I would love to go see a nutritionist and have them give me a meal plan of what I should eat every single day. That would be amazing. But mm -hmm. guess what? Losing weight is part of the of what the doctors tell you, but the how to do it isn't actually part of the spectrum of healthcare. And that's mm -hmm. a problem. Right. You know, it's it's interesting. Like when I've gone to the one thing that I've noticed is that's a huge it's not it's not like a it's never been catastrophic for me, but it's been something that's always been like, why is it like this? But whenever I've gone to the gynecologist, the assumption has been that everyone is there who is there, A, wants to have kids, and B, doesn't have any problems doing it, quote unquote, naturally. And so uh, one time, here's an example. I was, um, I was living in Chicago, and I was in a bad relationship, a relationship that was so bad that I was like stressed out and not having, and having a hard time eating enough, and I was underweight. And I went to the OBGYN and uh, she, they weighed me and told me I was underweight. And the OBGYN was this Ukrainian lady. And she's like, you have to gain 10 pounds, otherwise no babies. And she like, I was underweight because I was terrified of my boyfriend. Like she didn't even ask me like, why are you like, you know, like, why are you like this? Is this how much you normally weigh? Like, is something on your mind? Is something going on in your life? It was just like, better gain weight. Otherwise, no babies. Also, like, gaining weight enough to have babies with that guy would have been a fucking disaster. Holy shit. No way. And, you know, it was just like a, a minor thing, but I was just, it stuck with me, you know? It was like, you didn't even care to ask why or try to figure out why I was too small. You know, and you like literally could have had cancer. Like there are so many reasons you could be underweight. Yeah. There's like, you know, besides just like environmental factors, there could be something very wrong in your body. I could have, I could have had a tapeworm. I could have had a real bad tapeworm that was eating all my food. It was just, it was, it was like, you assume that I want to have children. And, you know, I, um, when I went to get, uh, I went to get my IUD removed at the OBGYN and, you know, a couple months ago and I, you know, when I looked around in the lobby and, you know, I thought about, I've had so many friends, you know, I'm in my late thirties and our mid to late thirties at 37, mid, late, I'll call it mid, mid, mid thirties. <laughs> Own it. Own the um, so I, uh, you know, I have a lot of friends that are my age that have had completely different journeys in fertility. Some of them have had no problem getting pregnant and having children and not having, not miscarrying. 
other people have had a, just a really, really hard time, like a heartbreaking relationship testing journey to getting pregnant. And, you know, the, the lobby of every OBGYN I've ever gone to has been like pictures of smiling babies. And, you know, that's really great. And like, if you're a person that's, you know, that's pregnant and stuff, that seems like on theme. But thinking about my friends that have had problems with infertility, man, that sucks. That sucks yeah. to just like every time you go to the doctor and have to deal with the problem um, that you're facing to just see pictures of something that seems like it's so easy for everybody else and to just always be treated like, you know, you're doing something wrong. And one of our listeners who wrote in um, was, you know, she was talking about how expensive going through like all these infertility treatments was. And she was like, you know, it's crazy. Insurance covers almost every body part that doesn't work, except not when your reproductive system doesn't work. So, like, what the fuck? You know, it's it's really, it's really a, ugh, it's it's an upsetting situation. And 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 I think that just because it's the OBGYN and because you're taking your pants off and you're letting somebody poke around up inside of you, it just is. It's like more sensitive a place than any other doctor's visit, you know? And, and I think the fact that we all have like, ugh, kind of stories about it is a testament to the fact that things need to get better. Um, let's talk about what needs to change in the healthcare system. What do you think the biggest thing that needs to change in order to assure that people have um, better health outcomes in the system? Alyssa, you're the policy wonk. What do you think needs to change? Uh, accessibility, Erin. Accessibility needs to change. You, if we all had the same health care, we'd all be able to see the doctors we want to see and uh, not feel like, like when you think about it, if, like Riri, you were saying, same with me, my health care has changed a bunch over the past couple of years. You finally find a doctor you like, there is like no greater, I take that back, there are many greater senses, but there is such a sense of being a victim when you're like, I found something I like and I can't have it. Like, it's just like, why can't I keep going to that doctor? So Aaron, I would say accessibility and everyone should have healthcare because we all know that the more that we are able to do preventative things, the less dire things happen. So there is my very insightful answer. Mm -hmm. Julissa, how about you? What do you think needs to change first? I mean, I think accessibility, it all really comes down to that. Uh, I really think that everybody should have like Goldman Sachs level health insurance because my best experiences with doctors were were when I could just call any doctor. I could go to out-of-network doctors because my insurance covered 80% of out-of-network doctors. So I could go see any doctor I wanted anytime for any reason. And everybody should have access to that. There's no reason why only a few people have access to the healthcare and then the rest of us are are having to spend, you know, an hour on the phone just to get an appointment. Or, you know, I go to, I go to a physical therapist that's not even part of my insurance because it, it's it's only $10 more than my copay and I can get an appointment the same day versus going through my insurance, having to wait a couple of weeks to get an appointment. And so if everybody just had excellent healthcare, um, then I think, you know, then I think that doctors would also be in a better position because mm -hmm. doctors also have to make a living, right? They, uh, a lot of doctors don't, the best doctors don't have to deal with insurance. They can go be out of network doctors with people that just pay them in cash, right? And so if doctors were also compensated in a different way, not through health insurance, 
uh, not where they have to, you know, there's also a lot of paperwork. And sometimes we don't really recognize how much shit and paperwork doctors and doctor's offices have to deal with to get paid by an insurance, to get Mm -hmm. paid by Medicare, to get paid by Medicaid. And so if we just simplify the system, not just for the patients, but also for the doctors and and for the nurses uh, and the dentist, then I think everybody would be much happier and we would get much better service from the doctors because they would be in a better mood. <laughs> Riri, what do you think needs to change? Um, I think uh, Megan McKay needs to know how to get her vaccine and when it's going to happen. <laughs> Um, if we're talking about accessibility, I think we need to talk about the issue on the table. I mean, yeah, the thing is accessibility and and um, rhetoric around going to the doctor, I think, needs to change or and and acknowledging that there is some fear. There is some like you know, institutional memory fear that people have towards it. You know, I'm thinking about everyone loves to slam like black and brown people right now. Like they're not getting the the vaccine. But then you see. Um, that commitment center in Philly with thousands of people outside waiting to walk up to hopefully get, uh, you know, so even the way we talk about it, the way it's covered, I think if we could figure out how to get rid of referrals just generally, I think that would be really cute. Um, And if we could find a way to make the job of like healthcare advocate architect profitable for them and then so helpful for everyone else, I think that would be a really great step because every person on here has talked about having to talk to their insurance, having to figure out what the, what the next move is, having to caucus with your girlfriends because some bitch won't give you plan B. Like, how do you, if there were people who help, were literal shepherds to help us through this in a way that you don't feel like it's going to be Rosamund Pike putting your grandma in a retirement home. <laughs> I think that would be really, I think that'd be really wonderful. And I think it, when we look at like how we're going to come out of all of this with so many people with pre- pre-existing conditions based off of a pandemic that they could not control or, or were subject to, I think we're going to really need that space and those, and those, um, and those advocates. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, mine are kind of trolly. I think we just need to get rid of the insurance industry entirely. It is serves <laughs> it serves no purpose. It doesn't doesn't provide any care, and all it does is exist to generate profit. It is useless, and it harms people, and it's bad, and it needs to go away. And I realize I've gone full Bernie here, but I've gone full Bernie here. <laughs> Second thing is, if we can't do that, then I think people. This is I don't even know if this would work. This might be a stupid idea. We should pass resolutions like by public referendum that guarantee people the same level of health care as elected officials. So like we pray, we pass like a prop 22, but not shitty in California. That's like everybody, you know, people who are on public aid are guaranteed the same level of health care as elected officials. I, I feel like that would be a great way to really make people start paying attention to the urgency of this problem. If we made congressmen go to the same doctors that like people who are on the lowest rungs of American society have to go to think it'd get fixed really quick. Mm, yeah. Anyway, that's, uh, that's why I'm not running for president. Um, okay. <laughs> Let's take a quick break. This was a great conversation and thank you listeners, everyone who sent us something, it really helped shape the way that this discussion went. And we really appreciate all of you for reaching out and I'm sure this is something we'll be able to talk about again because there are things we didn't even get to dip the surface of, uh, LGBTQAI issues when it comes to going to the doctor. Um, We didn't get to really talk about the childbirth experience because none of us have 
given birth. Um, but we can, you know, we'll talk about these things in future shows. So if you, um, if you have thoughts, please weigh in. Uh, let's take a quick break. But when we come back, I feel petty. Welcome back. We've reached the part of the show where we take really strong stances on things that don't really matter very much. It's I feel petty. All right. Who feels pettiest this week? Who wants to go first? Riri, you you said you had a serious one. Yeah, mine's a little more serious this week. I feel pretty petty about the fact that folk aren't going out of their way to post about issues on social media until they're already pre-made like meme infographics. (laughs) So like the rise of like attacks on like Asian American communities has gone obscene in the last year. We've, it's been a couple stories and it really, it really did feel for a moment, like unless you had folk of the community in your life, you weren't really hearing about it until about two or three weeks ago when there was a big push on Twitter. Like, look at these local articles, but unless you're on Asian American Twitter, you're not really seeing it. So that, like, there was a couple days where you started seeing people posting articles and like, please look at this. Please, these GoFundMes, please find out who this fucking guy in Queens is who pushed someone's mom down and she busted her head open. Like, let's help out. But then it was like a three-day period until then the pretty like salmon colored ones with a border were up. And like the ones that had more, you know, like someone did a, a digital graphic or something. And it it blew up. And part of that is maybe that people, more people were seeing it. But I also think part of it is that some people just didn't like, it didn't fit their brands for their like posting mm-hmm. to do it, to just take a screenshot of like a Chronicle piece. And that's, and, and it just feeds into like my bigger, not anger, but feelings around like what was happening this summer and what's happened since of like, unless it is, unless an issue or unless a moment of outrage is like bottled up in a way that like like really works on a story it really works on a repost it feels like it's still just the folk who are being affected by it talking about it mm-hmm. and it takes longer to jump over into the discourse it's i think it's a, the the lighter one is y'all your instagram ain't your real life look like you give a fuck about something but in this specific case i was watching and i i was late on the uptake of realizing like how bad it had been because it wasn't until all my Asian friends were telling me about it that I realized like I'm missing this because it's just not getting to my sphere and I felt bad about it but then like in sitting in that for two weeks I was like oh this is this is the cycle of it and how did we get folk to feel like it's their job to not just like raise awareness but actually like speak on it think on it like look at how you interact with it Mm -hmm. if it's not bottled or like marketed in a way that like uh feels not too dark to have on their brand. I mean, I think on a, on another level, this is like a, that you're right. It is an annoying behavior for people to just wait for it to fit their aesthetic before they take a stand on something. Um, I think it's also like another symptom of like the death of local news. The fact yeah. that these things aren't being, um, aren't being funneled immediately up to, you know, funneled and co- like covered in depth at the local level and then grabbed 
and and elevated to the national level. I mean, a lot of it's happening in major cities, so that's why we even know about what we know about it. But it seems like it must be happening in places outside of San Francisco and Queens. Yeah, you know, and and we're just maybe not hearing about it because local news is dying or being bought up by private equity and. All we can do now is post about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It feel. I think a part of it is it does. It sometimes can feel so impotent because, like, what else can you do? And so, why wouldn't you just be like, okay, it doesn't look like everything else you're posting with your matcha and all of the other stuff. I don't. I don't know. I want people to say things with their chest, and there's something about waiting for it to be formatted that like is frustrating to me. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. That's like, it is a serious one, but I can also see the pettiness there. Thank you. <laughs> oh, she's complaining on the podcast she's on about Insta stories. Okay. <laughs> uh, Alyssa, do you want to go now? Oh yeah. Mine is so, uh, mine is, mine is stupid. Yeah. Um, okay. So like Newsmax and OANN and all of these things, they have like nothing left to talk about. So they were attacking Joe Biden's dogs. Why would you do that? Why would you say they're dirty? It's so wrong. It's so mean. They are rescue dogs. They gave these animals a home. They're wonderful. And like, could you imagine just being the person that had to read that copy that was just like, and today we see these filthy dogs in the White House. Anyway, it really, it, it's been on my mind for many days. And is I just that, really couldn't. Is that like that's all they have to talk strategy? about? I mean, but like coming out against dogs is not really a winning strategy when it comes to popular opinion. Literally. And like, I think the same day that, you know, part of that uh, plane going from Denver to Hawaii, like part of it fell into someone's yard. It's like, cover that, you assholes. Like do something else. <laughs> I'm very mad I found that out like two days later. Like, I feel like... <laughs> United flights just dropping dropping bits wasn't big. Mm-hmm. No, no, we need to prioritize what gets to the people. Exactly. Yeah, that's uh, anti dog stance questionable for sure. Uh, I will go next because mine's really stupid, and I think it it really echoes a lot of uh, what old people are saying. What the fuck is Clubhouse? What is it? I can't use it. <laughs> I don't like it. It's 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 podcasts, but worse. It's the radio, Alyssa. <laughs> you, Alyssa, yes. you joined when you joined. I saw got a notification, and then it goes, "Do you want to welcome Alyssa?" Then it sent me into a live room where I was. I didn't realize I was waiting for you to join. I was like, "Oh no, she has shit to do." And so then I had to like jump out no. of it. It was so. Scary. I was like, someone invited me. It was like very nice of them. And I got on there. Literal social anxiety from just being alone in my room. It was, it's too much. It makes no sense. The question is why? Don't you feel like it's a little bit like people are like just trying to be popular? I mean, I know it's this point of all social media, but it's like, join me in my clubhouse. It's like, no, it's where bad things happen. It's like, it's like live podcasting yeah it's It's like it's a live show without the quality check but and you (laughs) and you can't you can't like you can't save the conversations right like you can only listen to them live Mm -hmm. yeah I, i i did my first clubhouse this weekend um and we were actually talking about uh asian american hate uh hate crimes against uh asian americans so it was like i thought it was like a very good one um but i was so nervous like i was like sweating 
I was so nervous because I didn't know when to like stop talking. I didn't know how long I should talk. There, there's no way people, then people were tweeting at me because they couldn't actually message me through uh, Clubhouse, you know, like we we're doing an Instagram live or something. It was very nerve wracking. And I don't know if I will ever have my own Clubhouse. Yeah, I don't want to be a part. I don't want to be a leader. I don't want to. I don't. I don't want to be a part of this. But I do remember a couple weeks ago when all I heard, I only heard about it from Black Twitter, and they were having Dream Girls like sing offs in front of people who had been in Dream Girls. So like Cheryl Lee Ralph was in there being like, "Baby, no." Like I I saw something. Apparently, some girl sang one note, and they were like, "You can stop." And I was like, (laughs) "Ha." This is hilarious. But that, but I don't know who needs this. So other than me. Apparently a lot of people do. It's like the hot new thing. Yeah. I don't get it. Once they open it up to everybody, it's not going to be the hot thing. No. I mean, we're we're talking on some beta shit right now. (laughs) Um, Okay. Julissa, do you want to bring us home? Yes. And, um, I misunderstood the assignment. Um, (laughs) Love that. Love that energy. Own it. Uh, So mine is actually serious, uh, but it is also petty, I think. Um, Okay. So this is what I'm feeling very petty about um, celebrities, about Instagram famous people, about the media, about um, pretty much everyone everyone i'm feeling petty about everyone who <laughs> is not um who is not outraged about the new migrant children facility yeah. that is going up in florida because mm. kids in cages are kids in cages whether it was under trump or whether it was under obama or whether it is now under biden and harris and yeah. I find it very disingenuous that people are trying to find the right um, angle of how to be outraged about this, um, mm-hmm. how to say the right thing about it, how to not anger people that they know in the administration. As far as my angle is that no kids, no kids should be in cages ever, ever, yep. ever. And for people that are out there being like, we need to be patient. I'm sorry, but if it was your kid in one of those tents you would not want to be patient about it. You would want that kid to be out of that tent yesterday. And so if you were outraged and raising hell when kids were in cages during the Trump administration, if you were concerned last week about the migrants in detention centers in Texas because it was freezing, then you need to be outraged and you need to be concerned about what is happening right now today under a Democratic Biden-Harris administration because this is not the shit we elected you for. Yeah. So fix that shit. And for people that are like, this is going to take time, fucking figure it out. What the right answer is, how we get, we need to get rid of those facilities. What the right answer is, I don't know what that right answer is or what that process is because I am not in government, but they need to figure this shit out. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And Julissa, that was a perfect I feel petty. Is there a resource um, or like organization that's doing on the ground work advocating for these to be closed if people want to ca- keep up to tabs? Yes. So um, Families Belong Together is one organization um, that is, they have a petition and they're mobilizing. There's, of course, Raices, Texas, uh, who I think a lot of people are familiar with, and they are uh, providing uh, legal services to these. And these are unaccompanied minors. So I do want to make it clear, like, what's happening. This isn't babies being ripped apart from their families and then being put in, in separate cages, right? These are 
unaccompanied minors, so minors that 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 um, came to the U.S. without a parent, without a guardian. Um, that's who is being put in jails, who is being put in this in this cages. They're ages 13 through 17. Um, uh, but those two organizations are one doing advocacy work to stop um, to to have this uh, detention center closed. Um, and Raices Texas is doing legal work uh, to try to get those uh, kids out and into sponsored homes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would follow those two uh, those two organizations and call your congressperson, just like we were calling congresspeople before. Like you can call your congressperson and, and we need to put pressure on the administration just like we put pressure on them before. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, we'll put those links in show notes. Uh, we'll also put links to information on the attacks against older Asian Americans. Uh, we're not going to link to stuff about Clubhouse because I don't think anybody should join. And <laughs> I think we all know enough about the Biden's dogs to make a judgment that they're not dirty. Um, thank you all for joining me. This was a this was a great episode. I'm so glad that it was you ladies who got to have this conversation. Uh, Riri, thank you. Julissa, thank you. My ride or die, Alyssa Mastermonaco. And uh, thank you to Dr. Heather Irabunda. And thank you to all of the listeners. Thank you to everybody who sent us stories. And uh, thanks for tuning in every week. There will be more hysteria for you next week. Hysteria is a Crooked Media production. Caroline Rustin is our producer. Our executive producer is me, Aaron Ryan. Alyssa Mastermonico is our co-producer and Brian Semmel is our associate producer. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer and our editor is Sarah Gibalaska and the folks at Chapter 4. Our digital team is Nar Malconian and Magic Group. Thank you to Juliet Beckstrand for production support every week. Home is your place of peace. It's clean. It's welcoming. <sighs> and it's definitely not crawling with invading insects if you use Ortho Home Defense Max. Use it indoors on non-porous surfaces to treat and prevent cockroaches, spiders, and ants for up to 12 months. So your home can stay your place of peace, your work-from-home office, and your family's headquarters. Kill bugs inside, keep bugs outside, and love your home. Visit ortho.com for more.